um, I've um, found out that um, Denmark, we have some Caesars of uh, high quality, um, the same ones those uh, France has donated. Um, and uh, I've put a tweet up in the nest. I was hoping if I could be really cheeky and ask everyone in the space who's actively online now, if they could please retweet it, because I've tagged a, a, a few important peeps. Um, thank you. I was not aware that France had any, any Caesars. Oh, sorry, that the, the Denmark had any Caesars. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I've, I've, <clears throat> yeah, I found out through a, a military, a well-known military analyst. Are you sure they've been developed, uh, delivered already? Well, it hasn't been, um, they haven't been officially delivered, that's for sure. No, no, I don't mean to Ukraine, I mean to Denmark. <clears throat> that is uh, the limitation, well, I think. I see. Well, no, I don't know. I don't know. I trust this guy. He's um, very well-known and up in his, you know, subject matter. Um, he's often interviewed in television. Um, so can I don't know. You, that's that's what he's told me. That's great. Can you get hold of him and ask specifically whether everything the Danes have ordered is in country? Okay, I, sh I shall do so. Thank you. Much appreciated. So, so just, just to outline this a little bit more. So the Caesar delivery uh, timelines are very long because the production capacity is something like 10 a year or 15 a year or whatever. However, what might be quite a good idea is to do similar to what uh, Morocco has agreed to, which is basically extend the domestic delivery timeline and basically say, well, just send these ones to, to Ukraine now and then deliver us some like next year, or the year after, because unlike Ukraine, we're not going to be shot at by Russia. They're just a practical solution, that's all. Mm. Mm. Well, as I said, I am pretty sure that he knows what he's talking about. He's ex-military himself and... Uh... I'm pretty sure that he wouldn't say that we have Caesars um, of high quality um, without them actually being in country. But I'll, I'll, uh, I'll dig for Thank you. I mean, in which case, so much the better, right? So much the better because they're already uh, done them, um, which, which makes the, any, any timeline of sending them to Ukraine even shorter. You're saying that may, maybe that's also a possibility, right? Maybe they're in the next slated for delivery or, or something along those lines. Um, yeah, but we'll, we will we will gladly retweet this in a few minutes because um, I think it's important that we get the news out and find it out. Yep. Thank yeah. you very much. I would so, really so, appreciate so, it. So, so Joe, nineteen seasons are have been delivered uh, on January um, sorry on January twenty twenty two sorry twenty twenty uh, to the Dan Danish army. So you've got at least nineteen. Great. So that's nineteen we don't need, and Ukraine does. Exactly. Uh, you're not invading Sweden, are you? <laughs> well, not this week. Would they fit through? Um, would they fit through the tunnel strictly, or would you need to put them on a ferry? Just, just wondering if they if they don't fit the height clearance. Fire trucks fit. They should fit. Oh, okay, fair enough. I, I guess the how it's in fire truck. Yeah. Anyway, John. Thank you. Um, just just building on what Sojo was saying. Um, it struck me that I, I'm not really sure where Ukraine ranks as a strategic priority uh, for the for the various donor supporter countries uh, who are who are helping out because you know five months in we're still talking about you know four five half a dozen MLRs here you know ten howitzers there um, 
And it strikes me that if Ukraine was being viewed as the number one strategic priority by the nations of Europe, the US, Canada, etc., that actually we'd, we'd probably be doing already a lot more than we are. Um, and that's not to, to criticise the people who are doing the work at all, um, because I, I've absolutely no doubt the people who are working on this are flat out and utterly committed to it. But I mean, at the political level, um, do we have, Axel, anybody who's listening, do we have any idea where Ukraine ranks as a strategic priority for these countries? Thank you. I guess it's on a country by country basis rather than uh, on a, um, you cannot answer, answer it completely. Like in Germany, I don't see that there, there would be any competitor for, for Ukraine as a strategic interest. Whereas if you take France, well, the French army is engaged in a relatively heavy uh, operation in Sahel and is keeping an eye in, um, on, on the Middle East as well. So it's whatever we think of Ukraine, the fact is that there's no French soldiers over there. So they are to, they are to, to pay attention maybe to, more to the places where the French soldiers are engaged. So yeah, it's on a country by country basis. Yeah, thank, thanks, Ben. And that's, that's exactly what I meant. Um, if we had a sense of where it sat on the, on the priority list of the individual countries rather than, you know, you, you're quite right. You, know, you, you can't lump everybody together as a block because everybody has, has different national interests. Um, anyway, if, it, if, it's, if, it's a bit, if it's a bit of an unknowable, then, then no problem. Thank you. No, no, it's, I think it's a good question. I, I think the big, if you, roughly speaking, if you take the further west you go and the further south you go, the, the more uh, attention is being paid to what's happening in the Mediterranean and uh, beyond the Mediterranean. Um, the big question I think that is worth asking is the UK. What is the commitment and what is the vision of the UK? Is Ukraine and, repel and the repelling of Russia super high on the list? Or, as, as uh, I think uh, Johnson uh, mentioned himself, well, there, there are still massive commitments in the Pacific, for instance. And, and if there's one thing we know about commitments in the Pacific is that they're expensive. So which which one is which? Um, if they were to choose, which Ukraine one? Ukraine is front and center, Ben. In the UK, Ukraine is currently front and center. And yes, the mid and long-term planning, unfortunately, so Brit is not on the panel, but of course the long-term strategic planning is absolutely important. But uh, I don't think that... Uh, Britain can always be, can ever be accused of not seizing the moment and not attending to what's urgent and important over what is just important. I, I, yeah, thank you for that, Axel. I'm sorry, I was going to say that I think Johnson's behavior, like in contrast to some of his political positions and, and, and Brexit just shows the depth of that. Like that the focus is absolutely like rational and strategic and therefore on Ukraine right now. For, uh, for Britain. Thanks, guys. And yeah, I suppose um, Britain, Britain can put its thumb on the scale to a degree, but it's not it's not going to be decisive because we we don't have the stocks, we don't have the industrial potential to actually provide what is what is required by the Ukraine. So I suppose if I'm going to rephrase the question, um, where do we or listeners think Ukraine currently sits? in terms of US priorities, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the Pacific? 
I can talk of, out of my ass, but I have no idea. I would say one thing for sure is that the smartest stakes I've heard about it uh, were tying the two um, in the sense that for the US, it would be a lot more difficult to take on China because let's, let's face it, that's what we're talking about. Uh, if Russia was strongly, was powerful and strongly on uh, on China's side, uh, with a weakened and maybe realigned uh, Russia, uh, then the proposition for the U.S. in a potential opposition with China just changes dramatically. Um, so, even if even those who are fully focused on the Pacific should care about Ukraine. Oh, I mean, I, I agree with you completely. I agree with you 100%. And, you know, the, the, the point is there isn't an active front at the moment in which to attract China, but there is a huge opportunity to do lasting damage to Russian capability and to effectively render them fairly useless for the, for the short to medium term as any sort of partner for China. So it would make sense to, to me, at least, um, that the U.S., makes a decision to actually go all in on Ukraine um, because I mean you know it's the Pacific is a, is an air sea battle um, to a large degree um, you know and yes they can give MLRS systems etc to, to Taiwan it's just it's just a different fight um, to what's facing Europe but the fight in Europe will have consequences for you know the the position down the road in the Pacific um, but anyway I just wondered if we if we had anybody who had a, a handle on the US side. If it comes up later, hopefully we'll we'll hear it. John, John, quick question for you from a listener: um, <clears throat> Why hasn't the UK given some challengers to Ukraine yet? Because um, you know, whatever number of challengers uh, the UK would give to Ukraine, that would actually have a much greater effect still, because it would remove the the you know the purported legitimacy of the Franco-German, so to so to say veto on sending leopards yeah i agree 100 percent we're absolutely 100 percent the the only reason i can think of why uh they might hold back would be well two reasons really one would be the generals um the the high command strategic command saying look we we cannot afford to release this this capability because we need it in the event of x scenario um but X scenario to me is is a future fight potentially defending the eastern flank um, when the fight is actually now in Ukraine and those forces we would be concerned about engaging in future are actually available, open uh, and can be destroyed right now. So uh, I don't see any logic in, in that. The other one might be if there is any rethinking going on inside the MOD about the need to upgrade more of the Challenger 2 fleet to Challenger 3s. Um, and they might be saying, well, actually, we, we can't afford to let these go because now we've decided, given the threat environment, we need to upgrade more. Um, but I would, I mean, I agree with the, the questioner. Um, I would I would be looking at taking strategic risk with some of those capabilities and saying, okay, let's do it. You know, the, the only other potential possible adversary rather than Russia that would, you know, that you're looking at involving armor for um, would be if it goes up in the Gulf region and there is a, a land war with Iran. Um, and I would certainly, as a, as a, a UK voter, um, I would hope that we've well and truly learned our lesson there. And uh, Persia is a, 
it's been ticked off the to-do list uh, and I wouldn't want to see it reappear. Thank you, John. Um, I really like your reasoning, uh, you know, against point number one, uh, because I have exactly the same reasoning, except you put it a lot better than I ever have. Uh, so, Joe. Oh, sorry. I didn't realize I had my hands still up. I was I was uh, uh, scrolling through a few things. I'd just like to say thank you to Khan, who, who's listening. Um, she sent me an article and I've, um, I've uh, added it to, to, to that post up in the nest which, if you'd be so kind enough, um, lovely uh, Walter Report followers and, and listeners to, to retweet. Thank you. I don't think it's actually up in the nest, but if you just go to Sojo's timeline, it's right at the top there. And uh, I've already retweeted it as well, and so have a few others, I think. So uh, you can find it other ways as well. Um, but, you know, so, so, so it's right at the top of Sojo's timeline is the one in Danish, so to speak. It'll be quite easy oh, to I recognize because it's not in English. <laughs> I'll try one more time. I have tried twice, I think. But I'll try yeah, one more time. Sometimes, sometimes it, in the it just refuses to work. Sometimes it just refuses to work. So just many things okay. with spaces. So uh, again, no worries. It's the one with okay. the, the you know in in Danish on top of Sergio's timeline. It's easy to find. I swear. Thank you. Thank you, Sergio. Uh, also, apparently last night, uh, you know that video of Heimars that is up in the nest. Uh, apparently, they destroyed uh, a bunch of um, uh, a bunch of. Um, Russian MLRS systems, grads and Uragans, uh out in an open field, and by by several, I mean like a whole whole battery, seemingly or maybe more than a battery, uh, which is a uh, you know very well done, uh, as well as what looks to be they're not very they're not explaining this very well. Maybe a command post as well. Anyway, there we go. Sorry, it's a the the Telegram video isn't necessarily very clear of 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 what exactly Ukraine says that they've uh, used them for. Do we get to sing the song? Which song? By the that? No, no. Oh, Ben, okay. Ben, I made a deal with Walter. We will only sing on VU Day, Victory in Ukraine Day. Wait, if you call it VU, that means that you expect another victory. Well, you know, Alsace-Lorraine. Oh, come on. You just need to ask kindly and we'll give them to you. No, no, no. We want uh, Strasbourg without all the mosques. You know, at least those which are full of radicals. The other ones we take. Oh, God. Um, like, who cares about Strasbourg? It's a nice city and all, but it's the stuff, it's the stuff south of it that is interesting anyway. There is some very good wine also to the north of it. Yeah, but... You, you, just, know. you just tripped into very, very deep, heavy water, my friend. <laughs> no, but on a more serious note, we are very we're equal opportunity offenders. Uh, we're happy that Strasbourg's football team still has a German language slogan. I'm I'm aware also Axel that uh, Altenberg the Bergheim is made quite far north. Yes, that's true. See, this is the good thing uh, about the European Union. We do not have to fight over the shit anymore. Yeah, just let yourself be conquered by the Germans. You won't feel a thing. I don't know whether our wonderful um, American Yiddish friend is still there, but he will probably have a laugh given the fact that the impact was on the Huguenot, on uh, rebuilding and uh, uh, upgrading Strasbourg and its area, and that those who were actually trading in wine in that area wouldn't drink it because it wasn't kosher enough. Ah, yes, I am here. I lost you for a second. Um, that's hilarious. 
And that's surprising. Why not trade it? Especially if you're not drinking your own supply. Exactly. exactly. That's why they were able to trade it. Same thing with horses. I'm sorry. Did I get called on and just miss it? Because Only slightly. Oh, okay. Sorry, guys. Only slightly. Um, I, I'd just like to uh, prod uh, Dylan a little bit because uh, he, he messages me often but finally came up to speak and hasn't said anything yet. And I keep telling him to tell other people the stuff he sends me, not just not just me. And then he says it's just his own personal therapy. So uh, if you want to, you know, say something for once publicly, I'd be much appreciative. Now he's ignoring me for the first time in months. I see how it is. Yeah. M is the only one whose good look do translate through, do carry across with uh, the state. You're just a really handsome Slovenian in, in wherever you are. Okay, uh, I've got um, a quick uh, job opening on sort of uh, announcements, if people are interested. Uh, it turns out that if you're good in the Russian language and you feel like teaching, the, um, the Russian Ministry of Education is uh, inviting you to teach in the so-called DPR and LPR. Um, and they will double the salary you would have been paid in Russia. So there it is. This is called, yeah, this is looking exactly the same. This It's looking exactly the same as what the French were doing in Algeria, like double the salary, bring some, some people uh, and, and try to normalize everything and then never succeed and uh, be in, behave like murderous assholes. <sighs> At least Algeria grew lots of coffee in you. Did you just mention a number of uh, wines, wine names and... Only one. Okay. Um, I mean, did you hear the good general um, today at the... I, I did not. I, I, was, uh, I, was, I was out for the night by then. Because 1am is a bit late because not all of us have the stamina to uh, sit around the bonfire until uh, much later still. Okay, okay. Bonfires and... are rejuvenating, and if you eat proper, proper, sensible steak of your barbecue beforehand, you have enough protein to fire you up and carry you through the night. And if you don't do it on Yani Pav night, then you shouldn't do it anyway. Having said this, there was also good reason to stay up longer because we not only did we have uh, General McRyan yet again, uh, you can hear the interview on YouTube, as Sir Dorman said already, not only did we have Mick on, and that was Really, I have to say, well, yet another improvement on the, the previous interviews we've had with him. Very incisive, very clear, prescient, uh, very specific, um, well dissecting what happens strategically and tactically. It is, uh, it is always an absolute pleasure to have him there and listen to him uh, because he is extremely insightful and makes the makes it less difficult to. Um, make your way through the thicket of this war. It is astonishing. Anyway, having said this, towards the end of the interview, um, we were joined by our friend Chuck, Chuck Farah, former head of SEAL Team 6, when it was not yet so well known in the world. I mean, in the 19, late 1970s and throughout the 1980s, and uh, someone who managed to ensure that one or the other not-so-sensible terrorist met his maker or met all those happy virgins. Having said this, uh, Chuck then stayed on for, I think, at least one and a half hours. I mean, I, I literally fell asleep at some point in time, but uh, what I heard and the discussions which we had were absolutely fantastic. It was uh, 
yet again a very very good uh, u.s evening program and i can only highly recommend to skip through it if you like there's a couple of very very decent moments um where his practical advice and his uh, strategic capacity also in assessing the value respectively the deficiencies of the un- immovable aircraft carrier snake island came to bear so we're very glad to have him on our program uh, as a regular speaker wonderful wonderful um axel you're you're a, what can I say a swiss knife of a of a strategist and i'm sure you're well aware of what is hybrid warfare, warfare and the sort of hybrid warfare um russia was waging on ukraine for the best part of 10 years Uh, would you say that the invasion on uh, February 24th was the admission that this hybrid warfare had failed? Or was it the logical next step after they thought that the adversary had been uh, sufficiently weakened? Yep, I've killed Axel. We're going to have to find another one. Uh, it's, I think it's easy to see. Sorry, I pressed the wrong button. Um, I think it's easy to see that uh, the occupation of Ukraine, be it direct or indirect, I mean, look at the Yanukovych government and then compare it to what was now planned as a puppet, a government with Medvedchuk. The occupation and dominance of Ukraine was always a target. The idea of this Navarrosia comes up, I think, in maps, uh, which were talked about in 2006, the first time around, that was discovered. Um, And then after the Munich Security Conference throughout the, you know, period from 2008 onwards, then in 2013, there are media articles about it, when it's used as a backlash kind of teaser against uh, the yeah revolution of dignitary. So during the December at that point in time, this is already being floated by Russian media. And then it's used heavily in the next year alongside the initial invasion. The hybrid warfare has been partially successful, but only partially. Because Ukraine at the same time developed, yes, with great assistance. Um, if you look, for example, at what we have been discussing at many times, Operation Unified, transitioning the Ukrainian armed forces from that lackluster and fortunately through volunteers reinforced and supported, but still Soviet army structure of what was then in 2013-14 um, and through 2015 uh, to what is now a modern Western style rules-based, extremely capable army, meaning uh, what a wonderful transition. But uh, Ukraine at the same time managed, despite all its troubles, despite being in, um, say, despite its democracy, this, and democracy as being the superior version of government, but despite the vagaries, I should say, of democracy, and uh, despite the uh, difficulty in what is at that point in time uh, an economy still heavily reliant on exporting and working together with Russia, don't forget, uh, and lacking the commitment of the West, as for example, Germany and or the German companies, Italian companies and French companies, um, supported by their governments, have invested significantly more in Russia during that period of time than they've done per capita in Ukraine. So whilst at the same time, Ukraine has to become very innovative and uh, it's very hard working to um, yeah, economically defend itself against this hybrid warfare and build up its resilience and its uh, cyber defense capacity at the same time. Don't forget what we're seeing now is a massive win 
for the cyber defense of Ukraine against the Russian onslaught, very few of those attacks which were expected by Russia have actually succeeded. And that is a showcase of the other transition in Ukraine in the past yeah, 15 years uh, to an extremely modern, very open and well capitalizing on uh, the yeah, two waves and revolutions in, uh, in software and programming and the integration of um, software guidance systems. Ukraine and its wonderful cater of students um, have made a big difference. Ukraine is one of the leading nations for outsourcing and programming, and they've overtaken pretty much everyone in terms of quality and speed. And it's open culture and, uh, and it's embracing of Western values and competitiveness uh, have contributed to that. So if you take this all together, the hybrid warfare has not fully succeeded. And, but the invasion was always planned. The invasion, the occupation was always there. So it's not, a, it, it, that's why it's difficult to say that this is um, a reaction to not having fully succeeded. But without the hybrid warfare, Ukraine would have been much stronger and could have built significantly uh, more important, better defenses against Russia. But it, it would have still lacked, um, say, proper air defense capabilities. Because the systems it has been using, still uses predominantly for uh, air defense, are essentially old systems which were developed and co-developed with Russia. Don't forget. So the S-300 system in, in place is still a system which uh, has been concocted um, at a time when Ukraine was predominantly still the workbench of Russia. So um, I can only give you this slightly more complex answer. I don't know whether, there is, whether the question actually is, is the one which is leading us astray or whether it is my answer, which is not properly addressing. No, 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 that was a um, very, good, very good answer. I was probably looking at it in a too simple way because I thought, well, if, if the Russian had hoped to just win through hybrid, war hybrid warfare, well, they would have won by hybrid warfare and having to move to something more direct, um, that's kind of a, that's the, that would have been the admission that their, the first phase of their plan was a failure, and which for me made it very amusing that the first step of the invasion was acknowledging their own failure. I mean, you have a point there. You know this, and the, the point is that, of course, they had they know that <clears throat> they had to go kinetic at some time or kinetic support in order to take the south and operate the south because they never wanted to leave the south to whoever then ruled Ukraine after because they needed for various purposes, including um, say the natural resources which are vested in there, the port access. They want to claim, because they believe from their prospecting, and they may very well be right, there's substantially more gas in the Black Sea, and uh, there's substantially more rare earth capacity in certain areas, and that there's even fracking capacity, which we know of already, in certain parts of Ukraine, which just has not been used. And uh, so there's good reason as to why they would want to take the south uh, by kinetic means. And I would have thought that it's, it's fair to say that they had, to, they had to do it at some point in time if they wanted to take it. Okay, we'll leave it to your ablutions. I think it's the time of prayer for you. Uh, and uh, no, I'm, I'm doing the um, washing the grill now because the second part of Yarny Path starts in two hours. Or is that the summer solstice thing going on again? Not again, still. It's, it's still, it ends, it ends tomorrow morning. Amazing. I just couldn't, I couldn't figure out why everyone was whispering. I came on. 
was very measured and calm. Speaking of calm, we have CJ. Welcome, CJ. Good morning. Before PT, even, who would have thought? You know, I think we're the only North Americans in this room that get up this early. Everyone's like, why are you up? Why didn't you go to bed? I go, lady, I just I just woke up. That's that's how we roll. Well, you know what got me up, Yehuda? Mm. The uh, first published video of High Mars, and Lord, is it beautiful. Tell us about it. What did it look, look like? What happened? Why weren't you there? Well, yeah, I actually was there. I'm driving back from Ukraine. No, um, you know, obviously, <laughs> they didn't show what it was hitting quite yet. But and I will also give them a slight critique. The two high Mars are very close together, which is a, a little bit, um, I don't know, Dude, no, no. cringe a bit, but that's okay. Um, but they were firing almost, I think it was 12 rockets. So they are unloading. So they must not be worried about ammunition, which is a very good thing. That was yeah. kind of the only surprising part from the video. Twelve. They fired a dozen rockets. Okay, Between the so two of them, yes. They must have had a good target because... Technically, they're only supposed to have 100 rocket pods for now. They must have more. Yeah, it's encouraging. I mean, if they're going to fire 12 at a time, again, 12 rockets is enough to destroy anywhere between three and four artillery batteries. So, you know, something on the order of 50 guns. So it's a, it's a great amount of ammo to shoot at once, um, which maybe was a little bit against my predictions that they would be more conservative based on the ammo they're getting. So they, they have to be getting more. But I think because Germany and U.K., you know, also ponied up some some rockets. If they're going to be able to do this uh, a lot more often. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, if that's the first go at it, um, <laughs> and I'm not sure that's zeroing in or bracketing. I think they, I think they got the the ammunition. Yeah, because that's twelve different buildings demolished, or it is you know twelve different platoons demolished. It's it's such an inordinate amount of of people and weapons destroyed at a time due to their accuracy that. Uh, I mean, I hope we see more of it. I hope we see it every hour on the hour. That'd be crazy. How can, is there any way to calculate the number of Russian feelings hurt on the other side? Uh, I guess I'll have to wait for Trump or uh, Reuters. I, 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 tried, but, uh, I tried, but the calculator aired up. Bleep, bloop, bleep. Yeah, I know. That's a really interesting. I'm glad to hear it. So that's the, here, you, here, you, here you have it. Um, yeah, 12. So if anyone doesn't know, I asked a bunch of dumb questions because I'm not an arty person. Uh, and no sane person should be. Um, but uh, how effective are each of these rounds and what can they do? And, and they're pretty special. They're very much, has anyone seen the movie Transformers? It's like that. One of these goes up, it can split into 800 pieces or maybe 10 or 6, I forget. And it can all attack a different item. Um, it could do an area. Uh, pretty incredible set of, uh, uh, it's a pretty incredible weapons platform. Uh, CJ, why don't you talk? Can you do a little refresher? What can each each uh, munition do? What are they likely to do? And what kind of effects can they have on the ground? Yeah, so great question. You know, I we know for a fact based on the video that it was definitely you know Gimler's rockets, and it was not you know an attackums, which we'll hopefully see one day. And the difference being, the attackums is the singular giant uh, ballistic missile that these things can fire versus six smaller rockets. So we saw the smaller rockets. But that's okay because, as Yehuda pointed out, these things have incredible accuracy. Uh, as far as them breaking apart in air, I'm not quite sure if they can do that. Maybe, maybe one day. But um, in any case, it doesn't matter because they do break apart and break into uh, 500 plus shape charges, which are perfect for taking out any uh, armor that may be lurking around, and you know, armor, artillery, anything with uh, anything with a protective shell that thinks they are normally safe is not safe when 
um, shape charges come around because the difference between fragmentation, like you normally see in artillery where it bursts apart with a bunch of steel fragments or a grenade that bursts apart is that armor can hold against that very well. But a shape charge not only blows up once, but it blows up twice, once to disperse it and the second to penetrate. So it really is a super effective weapon against that. There's also another option too, of course, which is unitary, which means, uh, you know, unitary one, a single have we lost CJ? Yeah, we lost you a bit. He could be getting driving through some crappy signal. CJ, come back. Maybe uh, boot him and come back. He'll come back in. But yeah, uh, just to finish off what CJ was saying, HIMARS equals really good. And uh, Russians don't like it, or they won't like it soon. Um, CJ, oh, he's coming back in. Yeah, the um, each each rocket is really ridiculously accurate. Um, so that leads to the next question that hopefully we'll ask CJ when he gets back in, and that is, how does the targeting happen? Um, guarantee, there you go, CJ. We're, you hear what I said, CJ? Yeah, you know. CJ, you were just starting with the unitary. Yeah, unitary, one single explosion, good against buildings or a single rocket launcher. So don't worry. In any case, I just constantly am repeating, talking about um, HIMARS. So, it, it, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm on, on a speaker or a listener. It'll just be the same thing. Fair enough. Um, okay, so next question, targeting. Um, what are the chances that the United States and allies gave these HIMARS with super expensive munitions and aren't going to provide the world's top best live targeting uh, information to the Ukrainians? Well, I think it was um, you know, announced with the, the package that gave HIMARS that they would get the, the relevant intelligence. I think this is what Secretary um defense lloyd austin said was that they would get the necessary targeting and what they mean for that and just talking very generally here is you know we can we can buy maxar or we can look at google uh, earth to get some sort of sense using satellites about where things generally are if they're a juicy military target but those kind of things don't provide the precision that you need to really use these weapons effectively because those kind of systems can be a hundred meters off for where these, uh, you know, targets might be in real life. And a hundred meters is a big difference, especially when you're trying to take out a hardened structure. I mean, your HIMARS or precision guided rocket could, could use that data and it would, it would not be very effective. And then you've just wasted maybe millions of dollars on, on nothing. So the, uh, precision intelligence that was given, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what it was, but I assume the U S wouldn't leave Ukraine hand, uh, hanging, especially if they're going to give them, you know, $40 billion worth of military gear wouldn't make any sense for them not to uh, have it be effective as well. And, and ongoing intelligence, obviously. So so real-time targets, whenever opportunities arise, chances are the Americans, or Ukraine rather, has access to probably the, the world's best targeting information, if I'm not mistaken, CJ. Yeah, I mean, and this is the difference, right? Like in Afghanistan, for example, you know, you'd have six to 12 HIMARS, you know, with six rockets each on a given day or night at the, at the thick of it. And you had maybe two or three targets and by targets, I mean a couple guys with weapons harassing locals or, uh, you know, a, a suicide bomb factory. And so it's not necessarily a target rich environment, but this is completely different, right? Ukrainians probably have a backload of things they wish they could have hit a long, long time ago. And now they're going to get the chance to, to do it. Amazing. Um, now just positioning this uh, high Mars unit here. Um, how, 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 disparate could the targets be in relation to the HIMARS? So some people look at these old MLRSs and they see 
the rocket's coming out, and generally the assumption is they're all landing within the very, a very, very you know tight grouping. Um, is High Mars that way? Yeah, I mean, each one is going to have its own designated target, or you know, if it's a very big target, they could all be fired at the same place, and they all hit exactly within the same hole. Um, and that's the thing that's so interesting too. You know, you do have to turn them a little bit if you want to hit different things. You know, they uh, they are GPS guided, but they don't you know do a 180 in air to to hit something behind you necessarily. But in the video, you see a little bit of time dispersion between when they're shot, which makes you think they're each going to a, a very different place, which is really interesting because if you're Russians and let's say you're actually disciplined and you have your troops and weapons spread out, but the Ukrainians know where you are, it, it won't make a difference. So that would normally, that strategy or tactic would defeat regular artillery because if you're very spread out, then only part of you are going to get hit. But with HIMARS, if you're spread out and they know where you are, it doesn't matter because all the rockets are going to find you. Right. So uh, if, let's just say one of these HIMARS is 40 kilometers out, uh, 20 kilometers, let's just say somewhere, um, ostensibly <clears throat> they could be able, you know, each of these individual rockets could hit a target a kilometer away on the on the far end of where it's going from a kilometer away from one target to the next, right? It doesn't have to be right beside each other is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, the Ukrainians can use them however they want, but these things could be very spread out, right? They could be 20, 40. I mean, they could be hundreds of kilometers apart, all shooting towards the same target um, because they, since they're GPS guided, they just go wherever they're told as opposed to uh, artillery, which you can't control once it's out the tube. Amazing. So um, does that also confuse the receiver and go, wait a minute, where, where are these all coming from if they're not coming from the same trajectory? So because does that help in, in uh, prevention of counter battery fire or can they do each individual missile, track it and then go back to the source? That's why the HIMARS has to move. Yeah, so that's a great point, right? Basically, what it's going to look like for the Russians on their radar is, you know, a big bloop. That's um, that's a military term, by the way that's uh, off in the distance and they'll be like, oh, okay, that's a massive weapon system. We have to focus all our fires on that. And then they get a, you know, a ping on their radar that's 60 kilometers in another direction. Like, oh, that, that's on the other front. That doesn't matter. Don't worry about that. Worry about the one right in front of us. Well, the reality is both those pings are actually going to be headed towards you. And so it's actually very confusing to um, address your fire support to, to fix the enemy when there's all these massive hits that are so far apart and you don't really know where they're coming until it's too late and they all are heading towards you. That's incredible. So instead of, I used one kilometer, you said one target could be 60 kilometers away from them, from the first uh, target, correct? Yeah, and since they're highly mobile too, I mean, you know, you want to keep these things safe, but you could also push them up to the front um, and, and hit a target so they can shoot up to, you know, somewhere around 70 to 80 kilometers and then bring them back. And, you know, that, that only takes a couple minutes and so the range of these things is really up to the Ukrainians and how close they want to, they want to put them. So that's another incredible part of these things is Russians that have moved their command post. And we saw this on Telegram about a week ago from 20 to 40 kilometers back to get out of Ukraine artillery range. They are no longer safe if, if Ukraine keeps their artillery or these HIMARS within 20 kilometers of the front. Do you think the Russians have prepared for this? Are they going to move their CPs right back to Russia? I mean, so or... <laughs> yeah, and that's the that, that's what I said they would probably do, and, and someone uh, brought to my attention that's exactly what they did. You know, they're already worried about it, and they moved their command post back uh, in preparation of HIMARS arrival, which means they'll have a much more difficult time of doing command and control. That's incredible. Yeah, that sets up all sorts of other problems, logistics problems, uh, signals problems for the Russians. Um, as you know, 
they have to communicate from their command post to their uh, maneuver elements and uh, moving, gosh, yeah, moving like 100 kilometers away from the front line. Let's just say they were 20, 30, 40 kilometers back before they moved back another 40. That that creates another issue for um, uh, command and SIGs uh, in terms of, um, you know, that means that the Russians now have to also uh, employ other signal communications assets in order to reach their maneuver units. Uh, that would be done with RRBs. Uh, uh, so that's interesting. That opens up quite a quite an interesting mix. They haven't been stellar with their communications to date, so it would be interesting to see the effect on um, on comms. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, you know, we saw all these Russian generals go to the front to try and fix the command and control situation, and you know, well and good how bad their communication situation is. So. The fact that they're they're scared of moving back, that's not very um, um, going to help the Russians' morale when they see their commanders leave them <laughs> to, to their demise pretty much uh, against these HIMARS. Thought, thoughts and prayers. That's great. Are you going to PT right now or are you, are you taking off? Yeah, I'm about to head out, but uh, I'll, I'll be back. Great to join you all as always. Thanks, EJ. Always a pleasure. If you could post that hey, in the room, if you want to learn a lot about artillery and uh, uh uh, and Rangers, uh, please like, uh, go to CJ's uh, Twitter there. Check him out. Genius. Thanks. We're, we're glad to have you. Come back anytime. Um, and uh, please post the video of the HIMARS if you haven't. And if you have, we'll put it in the room. Uh, thanks so much to CJ. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a big topic. This is actually a watershed moment as well. It's not February 24th, um, but it is a watershed moment uh, in the battle uh, that the Ukrainians are fighting for their survival. HIMARS is a super complicated, very advanced system. Um, <clears throat> it, has, it has the ability to, to do quite a lot of damage and with very little um, liability in the sense that they're mobile, they can hit targets very far apart. So one HIMARS uh, platform can hit targets up to 60 kilometers apart and I'm probably even further. So it means they, they, they'd fire off a missile and it would go in one direction. It could land in one on run, one Russian position, and another one from the same stationary vehicle could fire and launch in a totally different position. You do that, as you said, twelve times. The Russians are scrambling to figure out, hey, where, where is this coming from? Where are all these rockets? Like, you know, where are they originating? Because that's their. So as soon as those rockets are in the air inbound and hitting Russian uh, counter battery. Um, team trying to figure out how do we how do we kill what's killing us, um, and the answer is it's very hard, uh, especially since they've also never experienced it. They've experienced M triple sevens, they've experienced um, the other artillery platforms firing at them, and they know that these are you know uh, not dug in, but they are. There's a line somewhere. There's three three or four howitzers lined up somewhere, you know, on the other end of a forest somewhere. And, uh, and they want to return fire in the, into that area. Just as you've seen Ukrainian artillery or Ukrainian counter-battery fire hit Russian artillery, you normally see two, three, four guns somewhere in an emplacement, and, um, and the Ukrainians are hitting them. The Russians have that ability, too. They haven't been as successful as Ukrainians, um, but Ukrainians are a, little more, well, a lot more motivated. HIMARS is even more of a game-changer in the artillery world. Uh, it makes it so that the Russians are, literally can get hit in a wide, wide area, a huge battle space, and not know where it's coming from or not know until it's too late. So by the time they figure out that's where it is, those HIMARS are gone. 
they're 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 in a new position, ready to load up and fire at the next target. Um, to fire twelve rounds so quick, like right on the uh, the get go, uh, that's <laughs> a whole lot of money, a whole lot of money. So my point about targeting is not only did the Americans and NATO give these weapons, but they gave the stuff to make them work. In and of itself, they're probably useless. Uh, the targeting. Uh, would have to be done by Ukrainian recce elements, uh, reconnaissance uh, elements that are seeing the things in person and then reporting back where they are. And then hopefully they're still there by the time the information gets to where uh, it has to go. Um, Now, I'm not going to get into too many specifics. I know a little bit, but it's not important. But there's there's a very good possibility that that the Americans and, and allied forces can actually see, oh, a whole bunch of generals our command staff just showed up at this point to check something out and within a minute or two high Mars is, is, is launching at them. That's an, that's an incredible advantage. It's an advantage that the Russians don't have. And it's an advantage that Ukrainians have only because of the West. It's an amazing sight to see. And if you, you know, if you thought the Russians were getting some, you know, crazy losses of generals and colonels, you're only going to see that uh, increase. The only way out of that for the Russians is, if they move all of their command posts literally to the Russian side of the border, uh, that's a that's an area that Ukraine has promised not to hit. So that's fine. Assume the Russians have done that. Well, here's the drawback: they still have to communicate uh, with their CPs to their maneuver elements. So the people, the companies, the brigades. Uh, sorry, we'll go first out to the brigade groups, then to the uh, the the BTGs and then their companies and platoons, they all have to communicate with each other. They need to know what's going on and who's doing what. They need to receive orders and provide sit reps back. Um, in that, in the, that's a signals function, uh, signals being a core in most armies where they, their sole job is to provide command and control to the commander. They need to be able to communicate. Um, when you increase that, um, there's a whole another issue involved so that means that because the traditional radios used to communicate only go a certain distance that means the russians have to set up relay points rrbs retransmission rebroadcasting um uh nodules it could be whatever basically a bunch of radios on a truck that has some that has a big antenna so that uh so that it can relay information from one spot to an area back it has to have a generator it has to have uh, you know electricity to run it. Uh, it's not the end of the world, but in a moving, um, you know, condi- in a moving in a moving situation, a dynamic situation, you have to consider having these uh, new assets just to maintain control. So no one's they're not sending out um, units to go and attack without knowing. So it's a big deal, and and since they're not moving so fast, I suspect those RRBs, those Russian. RRBs are going to be static for a while, and that means they're going to be targets. And unless they want to throw air defense systems on every RRB, which would be probably impossible because they don't, they wouldn't have enough. Uh, you would need a lot of these um, every 20 kilometers. You'd have to have some kind of relay depending on terrain. You could say longer than that, but realistically, anyone who's been in the military knows that radios are notoriously uh, fickle in the sense that a lot of things can affect them, whether it's you know, atmosphere, weather, um, you know, terrain, 
Uh, so these are all really, really important things to consider. And it adds an extra layer of complexity to their signals communications plan, their signals estimate. And what that's important is we've seen them um, react and conduct themselves pretty poorly when it comes to communication to the point where they're relying on cell phones. Um, that's something we, we sometimes have to do on exercises, and it's a big no-no because it's not, it's not real-life playing, right? You can't, you can't rely on your cell phone um, to, uh, to do what you need to do. Uh, that's why secure comms are important. And uh, HIMARS, one, one major drawback uh, from HIMARS for the Russians, aside from getting killed and blown up, is that now it changes the structure of how they've laid out their communications plan. Every operation has a, has a comms plan in it. It has, it has a very specific set of things that the signal officer, the officer in charge of communications for a particular operation, whoever that is, it's usually it's, it's the signals officer, that person now has to create a much more complex plan in, in order to provide the commander with communication abilities. It's a big deal. I hope I'm not babbling too much, but if there are any questions on HIMARS or the uh, possible effects therein, uh, shoot up a hand, say hello. Yehuda, while we're waiting for a HIMARS questions to come, there's a question in my DMs that's really more aimed at CJ, but I think that you'll be uh, just as capable to explain this. Um, the question is, why does artillery so often set up in open fields instead of, say, in a wood? Uh, it's, it's a good question. It's because they're crazy. No. Um, well, you got to remember. So I remember when I was first doing you know, an Army Operations course, um, it's where officers of different trades, uh, infantry, I was infantry and a sig- also signals officer. Um, uh, but from an infantry perspective, if that's the only combat arms you know, uh, it's hard to sometimes understand what other combat arms do. So when you're in the infantry, you, you're doing things, you're, you know, you're advancing, you're advancing to contact. Um, and as a result, you don't really get a good um, an understanding of how, 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 for example, the artillery is laid out. So the first thing I asked when I was on a, a course with actually Major Giroux as one of the teachers, uh, actually the, the, the head instructor, um, you know, I, we're, we're, we're looking at, okay, they say, okay, you're, you're now the, the battle group commander. That's, you know, that's the whole course to become a battle group commander. And uh, you've got this, this, and this. Um, how are you arranging your troops? How are you, what are you doing with your artillery? What are you doing with your engineers? What are you doing with your armor? So, you know, you, you know for infantry, the first thing you, you get acquainted with is armor. The tanks. We, we're not tanks. They they get to drive around. We get to walk around, run around. So the, the armor you, you you can figure out because you're with them, right? It's kind of intuitive. Where's the armor at? Well, where it's where I'm at. Um, but the guns are different. You know, you don't. Before I I do those, I did that course, uh, and this is like courses that like these are advanced army tactics planning. It's where we learn how to lay out our forces and and where the Russians lay out theirs and how the Russians behave and how to, how to confront them, how to fight them. Uh, basically, it's like, it's a war gaming. So the question becomes, where does the artillery go, right? Because they're not, I never see artillery, right? Well, the answer is artillery is 20, 30 kilometers behind you. It means they're, they're technically or mostly out of range. So the artillery is usually, in, it can be in the open because they're not worried about counter that. So if the enemy is 20 kilometers in front of me and my guns are 20, 30 kilometers behind me, it's not really a big issue. You see what I mean? Um, they want to stay out of range as much as possible. So if they're not in range, it's not an issue. I guess the closer they get to the battle, they obviously 
they, 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 there's going to be cam and some kind of camouflage and concealment of the asset. But if you see them in some conditions, um, I think a reasonable person would say if the guns are in the open, it's because they're not in range of anything. Um, does that make sense? Makes good sense. And of course, um, even if there is counter battery fire, it's easier to move if you're not stuck among trees, right? Right. Yeah. I never, I don't think at any point they'd be in trees. Would they be on it in a tree line, meaning nearby, you know, 10, 30 meters, uh, in front of a tree line. Uh, so the, there's some kind of, you know, you know, some kind of concealment and then they pull up a, a truck behind it and then just drive off. Sure. Um, but the reality is, uh, or, or on the, on the reverse slope of a, of a, of a hill with, with trees. Um, bottom line is you don't want, you know, you want to shoot and scoot when you can, for sure. You want to fire and go to a different position, a predetermined one, obviously. Um, but if they're in an open field somewhere, uh, chances are there's an expectation by that gun, that battery commander, uh, and those on the gun line that they're not in range or so they can just leave real quick. Um, but in a field versus, you know, a road, uh, I'm not sure. I'm sure CJ could shed more light on that. And the last he's not with us right now. Yeah, no, yeah, no worries. Just food for thought. So, yeah, uh, High Mars is still, uh, you know, an incredible, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be great. I can't wait for CJ to talk more about it. It's, uh, it's a very interesting, uh, 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 it's a very interesting um, uh, development. So a good thing, a good thing, because they can move. They're very mobile. They they have ridiculous range, and in and in different directions. It's not like they, you know, they, they, I mean, what it could be stationary. It could be in one spot. It could fire, you know, and then ostensibly have a range of like fifty. Let's say if it's only fifty, you know, it could go from the north to the south fifty kilometers, hitting different very key targets, and every every rocket can do a thing. It's not like an artillery barrage from an M777 where, you know, you're within a certain area or you're within 50 meters or 100 meters. They could literally hit trucks in particular. It could hit, you know, a stationary target um, that's very small but could be very important. Um, and I, I don't think that the effects of the HIMARS weapons platform is lost on anyone in here because we've been talking about it for so long. But I think it's really a, a beautiful thing. I think Ben has a question. Sorry, Yoda. It's not about the the IMRs. It's about um, Maria Eight. Can you can you take it, or you want to finish your role on the on the IMRs? No, go for it. Okay. Um, I recently had an interaction with someone who said, who asked me, "Well, how do you know Maria Eight is not a scam?" And my answer was, "Well, I trust Yoda, of course." And to which he answered, "Who?" And I was like, "Yeah, go to their website. I don't know. Um, do, do you have?" The, the what would be the answer you would give to someone wow. who's well first yeah for sure I wouldn't even dress it like that because uh, it doesn't deserve the <laughs> it doesn't deserve a, a serious response uh, a, a scam I don't even like I don't even like the question and I'll tell you why um, Maria Aid um, you know for those who want to know first of all they can just check us out um, our principals those who represent the organization publicly are well known you know, serving commanding officers in the Canadian military. Not only that, RAID is supported by the government of Ukraine, as in the defense minister, as in they speak with us 